friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. Hi guys, we are live. Um, we should probably introduce ourselves. I mean, you see our names, but I'm Sarah, this is Tabby, and this is Leah. We are the Becoming Buffy hosts, and we're so excited to see you guys. Like, well, see you guys. We're excited yeah. to talk with you guys today. Whether or not you call in or not, it's just going to be really fun. Like, we get to talk about the best finale or one of the best finales in the Buffy series, and it's going to be a blast. So... First of all, I want to say the day that this episode is going to air, we're going to post it onto our um, regular podcast on Thursday. And Thursday actually also happens to be National Women's Equality Day. So I just oh, wanted to say I thought yeah. that was very fitting. <laughs> we planned that so, uh, for sure. Yeah, no, we did not plan that. But <laughs> I was writing it on my calendar and I saw it. I was like, National Women's Equality Day. This is perfect. So happy yep. National Women's Equality Day to all you women out there. And David. And David, I know the one boy who's <laughs> here. That's our brother. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about how this is going to work real fast. So basically, if you've listened to our podcast before, you know how does with spoiler section. It's kind of a free for all in the sense that like we have set things we're going to talk about, but we also end up just kind of talking about everything. Um, so if there's anything in particular that you want to talk about as we're talking, feel free to just call in. There should be – I can't see it on my screen, but there should be a place somewhere near the chat area for you to be able to – it says ask a question and also you can like – you write in your question as you call in. And feel free to call in more than once. We want to hear from you. We already know what we think with most of these things. And if you don't want to call in, that's totally fine. You can just listen or chat right along with us. Depending upon how many people join in and stuff, we might not be able to get to you right away, but hopefully like just keep asking and we'll we'll get to you eventually. Um, Tabby's going to be reading the chat and she'll be responding to you. Leah's manning Instagram. So if you guys have any questions, feel free to uh, to DM us. Our Instagram is becoming Buffy Podcast and our email is becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. Sorry, this is like the annoying, boring part of the episode. Shall we let everyone know that it's the spoiler section? Oh, yes. This is the spoiler <laughs> section. <laughs> so there will be spoilers if you haven't seen all of Buffy and also the show Angel. Just be forewarned. You can totally stick around if you want to. But yeah, just letting you know now. All right. We're not necessarily going to go in order the episodes like we have in the past. We're going to go by character um, simply because it's just easier that way because we're combining Becoming Part 1 and Becoming Part 2. So to start off – um. Let's talk about Angel. All right. So one of the questions asked in this episode that we talked about in Becoming Part 1 is, who is Angel really? And one of the big things that we see, like in Becoming Part 1, we see he's, you know, the lazy, irresponsible Irishman who likes to party, wants to see the world, you know, cruel, sadistic monster of a vampire, lonely, depressed, soulful vampire, and then Buffy's quiet, brooding boyfriend. So 
I'm sure most of you guys know, but David Boreanaz became aware in Becoming Part One while they were filming it that Joss Whedon was actually looking at making an Angel spinoff. Um, he talks about how he was called into Joss's office wearing a really bad wig, and he was so nervous, not because um, of what Joss like wanted to talk about the spinoff. He was nervous because he was trying to practice this god-awful Irish accent, and he was super nervous about it because he knew it was bad. And so he thought Joss was going to fire him because of his accent. Um, and so we all know that the Angel spinoff happens after this. And I think it's really interesting as we're uh, as we're watching like all of this stuff happening with Angel in Becoming Part One, there's a lot of like Whistler asking like, I want to find out who you are because you could go either way here. And I was totally thinking about the powers to be and how there's like the whole, we don't know if Angel's going to work for the good guys or the bad guys in all of Angel the series. And I wonder, like, I'm pretty sure at this point they didn't know the premise of Angel fully. And so I'm curious, like, if Whistler had been in Angel the series, do you guys think that he would have played a big part in helping Angel either stay on the good side or the bad side? Because I'm, I feel like Whistler is a huge enigma in this, and I feel like when it comes to him talking to Angel, it you don't fully get the sense that Whistler like has skin in the game. If that makes sense, I don't know. I'm just curious what you guys think about like Angel and then Whistler particularly because I feel like he was a missed opportunity. I just think he was a prototype to Doyle. I think they were like, oh, this is an <laughs> idea of what we want in like the show Angel. And then they just like never talked about him again. Every time he shows up in like the Becoming Part 1 and Part 2, I'm always like, oh, yeah, Whistler was somebody that was in the show. And then he just is never talked about again. I feel like that happens with a couple different like characters. They'll come in and I'm like, oh yeah. And then they set up this whole like storyline that they could go with and then they just are never talked about again. Do you guys think like how would Angel the series be different if Whistler was there and not Doyle? Emily said that he was there. His name was just changed to Doyle. <laughs> well, see, I do know Whistler was supposed to be in there, but the actor, um, what's his name? I can't remember his name. The actor couldn't make it in because he had like a scheduling conflict and stuff. And maybe maybe Doyle's backstory was supposed to be Whistler's backstory. I don't know. But okay, so I have a fun fact about Whistler. So apparently he's continued on in the comics. I personally have not read the comics. I wonder if one of you guys have. Okay, so Whistler is half-demon whose father was an agent for the powers that be. Apparently they had agents. And whose mother was a full-blooded demon. The two were executed for this relationship, his parents were. Whistler was given the sight by the powers that be, serving as an agent to maintain balance between good and evil. He was sent to Angel in 1996 to keep the balance, not realizing that Angel would turn to the side of evil by sleeping with the Slayer. And that's from Buffy the Vampire Slayer Encyclopedia by Nancy Holder. Which I think is interesting because that's something that's not very explained well in both Becoming One and Two because we're like, who is this guy? How does he have all this information? Why is he here? And so I think knowing that he works for the powers of be and he's there to kind of like set things in motion and balance, it makes a lot of sense. So, Well, I think he was kind of a missed opportunity. I mean, obviously, I think that they really were planning on fleshing his character out more, whether that be on Buffy or Angel. But I think that as much as I do love Doyle, I think Whistler, at least in my opinion, was a way more intriguing character just because mm. it was so much of like a, whoa, like 
how do you know so much? Where do you come from? Because it was like in season one, Angel was the one who kind of had that like omniscient knowledge. And we were like, whoa, where are you getting this knowledge from? That's true. And so it's weird to have it in season two, that have someone true. have way more knowledge than Angel does. So I think it would have been really cool to have him on Angel. I mean, I loved Doyle as a character and everything. So I'm not saying that Doyle should have not been there. But I think that... I don't know. Whistler just had this creepy, like creepy. Like he did. He's a little creepy. Like <laughs> yeah. he had this creepy he was knowledge a little creepy. to him <laughs> that, like, it was like, where are you getting all your information? And I also think he yeah. was so, um, what's the word? He was so uh, impartial that it's almost oh, interesting yeah. to watch him because you're like, do you actually want to be good or are you just relaying a message? Well, I. I think it's really the reason why Doyle's kind of underwhelming at first for me. He really grew on me for you know the thirteen episodes that we had him, or like eight. Um, I think it's the fact that they literally just took what Whistler's character was supposed to be and then just made it into Doyle because he's supposed to be half yeah. human, half demon, which I think is an interesting concept because he's supposed to mirror what Angel's going through and tell him, yeah. "Hey, there's hope for you," because. As far as we've seen, I think this, I said this in the non-spoiler version, but as far as we've seen, we've only ever seen demons and then like humans. And so Angel's the first one that we've seen. It's like, okay, he's a vampire, but he has a soul. We haven't seen a demon that's been, has a conscience, is like half human, half demon. So I think the idea of Whistler is really awesome, but then they just... He leaves. And then you have Doyle, who's like exactly the same. So I think maybe that's why he's a little bit underwhelming. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I loved it when you brought that up in the, I think it was becoming part one. We were talking about how Angel's never met a quote unquote good demon before. And so for Angel, it gave him hope that he could become someone someday. Um, Angel Insurgent says, yeah, exactly. Doyle took over the part of Whistler in terms of being the connection to the powers that be. And I think if Glenn Quinn hadn't had to leave, he would have had a significant role in keeping Angel on track when he starts to have his identity crisis in the later seasons. Doyle is definitely a more charismatic character, but it's weird that Whistler was set up as the guy who came and retrieved Angel from the alley and put him on track to help Buffy, and then he didn't appear at all Angel. Shame. It's true. I think, unfortunately, like, that's what happens when you add this random character in and then are like, ooh, let's make a season or make a show and then try to add that character in. It just – it makes it really kind of odd. But I, yeah, I think he, honestly Whistler is possibly the weakest link of becoming part one and part two, which isn't saying much because those episodes are fantastic in and of themselves. But I think that if we had had a later tie in with him, it would have just been like, ooh, this is so good, you know? I think he wouldn't have been the weakest link if, uh, like, again, what you said, if he came in later. And I really think that they had plans for him. Like, I, he, yeah, he's probably. set up to have, he kind of just reminds me of like an angel in season one. Like, I mean, less brooding and hot, but like way more just like a <laughs> omniscient, I'm here to drop information and leave. The green didn't so work I think for you, Leah? They definitely, no, not, not Doyle, uh, Whistler. I know. <laughs> he's like, I want to be like you, but I don't want to dress like you. Oh, yeah, no, literally. Do you guys think Whistler and Cordelia would have been a thing? What? Absolutely oh, not. Oh, <laughs> Doyle. Doyle no. and Cordelia were things. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm not this is why, pulling this no. out of my butt. <laughs> this is why I think that Doyle Doyle seemed more human and attached to um, 
like the world. Whereas like Whistler is a lot more objective and is just kind of like a messenger. Is he though? And He's so, over there like, can I have a hot dog? I love the world. <laughs> well, just because he eats a hot dog doesn't mean he wants to go and make out with a girl. Like, <laughs> But I think that like Doyle was a human aspect that we probably really needed in Angel. Because, I mean, Angel is so out of touch because he's literally a vampire. But it's like having another person that, like, is kind of only half in the world would have been really hard. Everyone's very much against Whistler and Cordelia. <laughs> I agree. I agree. agree. Whistler just has – he has a creepiness to him. And also, I, okay, was I the only person that as I'm watching, especially part two when he's talking with Buffy, I felt like he was literally mansplaining Buffy's role and her job to her. And she's over here like, hello, like I'm the slayer. I've been here, did that, died for that. Like I don't need to be told like you have to sacrifice. It comes down to you being by yourself. I feel like Buffy already knows that. And so I think Whistler's role was he was supposed to kind of be a Giles stand-in in in a lot of ways too because Giles was not there to relay that information. And (laughs) Leah. And so it just came across as just really like – I was showing my oppa and toothless – Yes, I know. I can see taking pictures. But it just came across as very, um, I don't know, like I know more than you. And we're like, no, who are you, dude? Like we – yeah. Anyway. All right. So let's talk about – because I know there's a couple people that are wanting to talk about this. Let's jump into the controversial Angel and Buffy age gap. We'll be here all day. It is – one of the things that I hear most often in regards to anti-Angel is the idea that Angel was predatory and that because of the age gap, he, it was pedophilic. Is that a word? Pedophilic? I don't know. It was creepy predatory. and he was stalking her. Predi- yeah, we'll say predatory. So I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are. I feel like we've kind of already talked about it in the podcast. Um, Bex is going to call in. I can give people a tour of my stuffed animals while we're waiting. Okay, so this is Appa from Avatar The Last Airbender. If you haven't seen it, please go watch it. This is Toothless because How to Train Your Dragon is my favorite movie. Um, This is Cal. He's a little hippo. Um, This is Toto. He's um, from later. Hi. This is Bex. (laughs) Hi. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're good. We're so excited to see you. You look so pretty. Oh, thanks. I put makeup on for you guys. <laughs> so did we. Normally we're like in sweats and yeah. Okay. So talk to us. I don't understand how people are consuming vampire fiction if they are unable to suspend their disbelief about age gaps not meaning the same thing in a vampire human relationship that they do in real life. like. You signed up for this when you decided to engage with vampire fiction. Not to mention, I know you guys are on the same page, but not to mention that Angel was 100% not the one pursuing in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And also, a 16-year-old who has to put her life on the line every night, who is expected to exhibit adult levels of maturity about literally life and death situations and responsibilities and has a really high likelihood of not surviving to an age of, like, legal maturity, which is also different state to state and country to country, um, cannot be held to the same standards as a real-world minor. Like, I'm not saying that we should just accept 
dodgy, toxic relationships across mm-hmm. the board, but this isn't one of those. And it, guys, it pisses me off. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that when they created the character of Angel, and we talked about this before, too, Angel was supposed to be 17, like between 17 and 20 years old. So there wasn't supposed to be this massive age gap. And David Boreanaz looked like he could be close-ish to that age in season one. But we talked about, too, there was something that happened between season (laughs) one and season two. Like, David just, like – and not I'm not going to say, like, he got old, but, like, he he looked older. And so it became really hard. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't look like a teenager. And so it became really hard to buy a 16-year-old, or I guess Buffy's turned 17, a 17-year-old sleeping with a guy that looked like he was 27, 28. Um, but and then later on in the show, Angel, too, obviously, like David Boreanaz was in his mid-30s at that point. So then it was like very clear that Angel the series needed to reflect that. And so it needed to be more of an adult type show and its metaphors and all the other stuff. Um But – and so I think sometimes when people are saying, oh, it's creepy, they're looking at Angel and Angel the series and reflecting back to Angel and Buffy together in season two and three. And it wasn't even – like it didn't even look that extreme at that point either. Yeah. But also can I say that why is it that Buffy and Angel are the only couple out of all the vampire and high school girl lore that is being crapped on for pedophilia? Why? Ooh, like why? Yes, you look at Twilight. It's romanticized. No one talks about it. And she's in high That's school for. True. I mean, I've only seen the first movie, but it's like she's Twilight's in high school for movie. what two two movies, two three movies, and then Vampire Diaries. Every single, every single, every single like human and vampire relationship. One of them is in high school, and it's usually the girl, and they're in there for years. And to add on to what Tabby is saying. No, you're fine. I was just going to say to add on to what Tabby's saying, a lot of those shows, it's even creepier because they're the older vampire is choosing to be in a high school environment. Like, go to high school classes, <laughs> attend them, enroll. What do you expect? When they're literally like 100 That's years old. That's true. Like, literally, <laughs> Stefan in Vampire Diaries, again, not trying to crap on Vampire Diaries, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he literally, he's graduated high school like over 10 times. But he just chooses to enroll over and over and over again. That's kind of predatory. Like, I love him. but like At least Angel's not go, in high school. Yeah, Angel's not trying to be young. Like, he's he's not even yeah. really, like, the only reason he started interacting with Buffy was to save her. And yeah. what Beck said, he's, Buffy's the one who's pursuing the relationship. Every time the first season, she's he's always like, I'm older than you. He's like saying, like, hey, like, I don't want to get you hurt, like, all these sorts of things. And Buffy's the one who's, like, making all the moves. It's not like he's being predatory. He's not in high school. He's not stalking her. Like, he's being helpful. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, big age gaps are really suspicious. Not always. Big age gaps can be suspicious in real life, partly because you also, like, aren't always sure of the motives of the older person. And, like, are they trying to coerce or manipulate the younger person into doing something that they don't understand or that's going to hurt them? But in the case of this series, like, you literally see their relationship develop from the beginning. Okay, fine, you get the very beginning in this flashback at the end of season two. But, like, 
all through season one, he was there for business. Like he pops up every now and again with little tidbits of information for Buffy and then he disappears again. He really tries to keep his distance. But there's this great live journal uh, blog from years ago by an author called Lettered. I don't know their real name. But she writes this great line where she describes Angel falling in empathy with Buffy the first time that he sees her. And I use it all the time because I think it's so true, accurate and beautiful. But he he want, he sees her outside the school and he wants to protect her from that darkness that he's so familiar with. Like he had his like his literally his life taken away from him and was placed into this alternate experience without any choice and that's literally what has happened to Buffy so he is literally there for for business at the beginning and he tries to fight his attraction to her and she pursues him he never pressures her if anything she is like constant as you've talked about this she's constantly having to like persuade him to go a bit further but he he's just he's there for her the entire time and she has to grow up way too quickly and I I, I love that she had someone there for her who understood the darkness of it all and could help her through it like what what would she have done in the in the first two seasons three seasons yeah but also like someone mentioned this in the comments too and I never really thought about it but why is no one saying that about like Anya in season three with Xander yep and she's way way older and has a conscience and she yes like Angel didn't you know I don't know it's just I feel like sometimes there's well Anya was Anya was technically in the body of like a high schooler now so like so is Angel so is Angel Mm -hmm. No, he no, technically no, I, was supposed to be turned at 17. No, no, I know. I, I agree with you guys. I'm just saying that like you could <sighs> – Yeah, I know. I know. Don't point your pitchforks at me, man. But like <laughs> I'm saying Anya was literally trans – like her consciousness and everything was literally in the body of like a like literal high school teen. Because we have that whole episode where she goes to um, – what's his name? Yeah, the, the witch. The demon dude. Yeah, the head demon dude. Where oh, she goes back, Hoffren. and she's like to Hoffren, and she's like, "I'm stuck in this like teenage body, and I want to get out." So it's like mm-hmm. she, I'm not saying that it's you know that Angel was in the wrong or anything, but I, I do think you can make a case for saying that like Anya was literally forced to be back in a teenage mindset and a teenage body. So that one I think is a little different, but I do understand where it's like. But aren't vampires stunted that. emotionally? At the age that they mm-hmm. were like sired, though, I feel like that's the same thing. Think about it scientifically too. Like our brains aren't fully matured until I think it's twenty-five, is what it is. Maybe a little bit later. And so, if Angel is turned before that, he's supposed to be technically the same age as a teenager. And so, like, I I kind of see what you're saying, Leah. But I think in a lot of ways, it's the same argument. I think Angel's just supposed to be just as young. I think the reason why it goes down a little bit better with Anya. It's because Anya and Xander look a little closer in age, but also because the majority of their relationship is after high school. So everyone's like, okay. But the thing is, like, they still had a semi-romantic relationship while she was still in high school. And I think, too, because she was actually, like, at Sunnydale, people think, oh, student versus with Angel, not actually student. Like, yeah, there's just a – there's just a disconnect there. 
All right. So now I want to talk about Darla actually real fast since – Wait. Before we move on, yeah. David did say something and since he didn't get to call him, we should say it. He yeah. said, my problem is that I think Angel has pretty privilege. He's hot so people forgive him for sleeping with an underage girl. <laughs> Buffy's 16 – well, she was 17 when they slept together. I actually have no problem if she were of age, but she's a teen and it would be illegal and kind of gross. Okay. Here's the thing. I agree. Pretty privilege. But- I'm dying. I'm absolutely dying. No, okay. No, I think that that is a very valid point, but I also think about the fact that um like there is such a thing at least in California, I don't know if it's cross board, but there is like the Romeo and Juliet rule where it's pretty much like uh the the legal age of consent out here is I think it's 16 or 17, but if there is that 3-year age gap where like a girl is 17 or a guy is 17 and then the the significant other is within 3 years it's legal did you did you catch um that comment about that our brother said about how um angel has pretty privilege me <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, I caught it. I caught it. You caught it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So these comments are hilarious. Everyone's (laughs) – Leia, same with Spike. People forgive him for the sexual assault because he's hot. Also Xander. And then she says, they're all hot, LOL. (laughs) It's true. Not Xander. I – so this is really interesting. So I watched the show when it was airing in Australia and the age of consent consent in Australia uh, when I was watching it was 16 and no one I was on the forums at the time guys and that old but no one was talking about the age gap when the show was airing like it's it wasn't that's so interesting it wasn't a thing that people were concerned about and I get that that's partly because we're much more aware of uh, the problematic content we put out in the 90s now and we're doing our best to um, like acknowledge it and call it out. But I honestly don't think it applies to this relationship. Also, like it definitely does, it's definitely influenced by where each viewer is watching it because for a lot of the world that was not – an illegal relationship and it's like news to us that um people think that Buffy was a victim of statutory rape I I can't I can't get on board with it do you guys think that with like the me too movement and all the stuff that's been happening in the world we're more aware of um power dynamics too. And that's also kind of put on a filter of how we view a lot Mm -hmm. of this stuff back in the 90s. And so people are going, oh my goodness, there's a huge, obviously drastic um, age gap, however you want to say it. And so they're like, there's a, there's a power dynamic that's off here. Do you think that's, that's part of it? Yeah, I absolutely think that's a huge part of it. And I also think that in this very small fandom that we're all a part of the age gap has come partly from that new lens that we're viewing everything and partly because the ships are so divided and so (laughs) um aggressive towards each other that people are looking people I don't I don't know who (laughs) is involved in that um I I think it's become a way of tearing down Angel as a character to justify 
certain other characters. And I feel like actually it does the character of Angel a huge disservice because he is anything but manipulative with Buffy. Like it's so clear that all he wants is to protect her. He doesn't mean to fall in love with her, but they fall in love with each other and there was literally nothing coercive about it. Yeah, I agree. I can definitely agree that I think that in general, I hope and wish that in the future we're moving away from the storylines of like high school and mixing that gray area of high school with like supernatural older men, Mm -hmm. whether that be vampires or whatever it is, or women, you know, because it can be either or. Um, Because I think that it's too often and it's like, it does become great because it is supernatural. And so it's like, I hope in the future we move away from that because it ultimately, it hurts their own characters. Like people like Stefan in Vampire Diaries or Angel in Buffy, like they're not predatory. But when you put them in this weird situation, it now makes it hard because people have to defend them or whatever. So I I do hope that we move away from that in the future because it just makes it so hard. Yeah. 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 I agreed. And we talked about that too. We're like, it's hard that we have to defend it because we all obviously all love Angel. It's unfortunate that we have to be like, yeah, it's probably not the greatest look, even though we know that 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 power dynamic is not skewed, like they're very much equals. So, okay. So kind of leading into that, I actually have a question for you, Beck, since you're oh. here. So kind of talking about Darla transitioning. It's really interesting. I think there's a very clear contrast too between Buffy and Angel's relationship and Angelus and Darla's um, and even Angel and Darla's. I feel like there's always a huge power shift and there's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of uh, using their their affections against each other. I mean, I say affections in quotations because I think it's all very selfish. Mm. And so I think that when you see an abuse of power, I think that Darla and Angelus um, – they they're a really good picture of that simply because you have Darla coercing Angel into becoming a vampire without his knowledge. And then they're equals when they both are unsold. But even then you see like Darla abandons him in that burning barn at some point too. And um and then later on when Darla um becomes or when Angel becomes sold, then Darla manipulates him and verbally abuses him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have and then Darla becomes human again. And then it's and then Angel like uses her and sleeps with her. Like there's yeah. this constant using of each other. And then when Angel loses well, when they take Angel's soul away briefly in Angel the series to try and get the answers out of Angelus about whatever that demon was called, then you learn again that like Angel has Clearly, like he has such an understanding of everybody's in a like he's constantly observing everybody, but he never uses that knowledge of everyone against them. But then, as soon as that soul leaves, Angelus is like, Here's all this information I have on you guys, and I'm gonna destroy you with it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so kind of like transitioning into talking about Darla real fast. I have one more question for you. So they obviously, Angel and Darla have a complicated relationship. There's a lot of parallels between Buffy and Darla. Um, and as in like Buffy's the light side, Darla's the dark side of Angel's like, you know, toxic relationship, healthy relationship um, to boil it down to its simplest form. Do you guys think that sold Angel and Darla could have been a good couple under different different circumstances, do you think that they could have been healthy 
Do you and then on top of that, do you see Darla as Buffy's rival, like the closest to Buffy's rival for Angel's affections in the Buffy verse? I know that's a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I think at least for me. Sorry, I have that. You asked like three questions. I did. I'm so sorry. Just answer um, whatever you want to answer. Can you can can you say them again? Yes, I can break it down. Okay, so do you guys think? Well, we'll say the first one. Do you guys think? Oh, healthy or unhealthy? That sold Darla and Angel could be a good couple. And I'm not talking about like, oh, let's say nothing had happened with all of the crap that happened in their past. Like Darla came to, she was human and she, so she had a soul and she kind of came to that moment of like, man, like I really like messed up right before Drusilla comes in and changes her. And they have a really like pure moment between the two of them. Do you think in the future, whatever, they could have ever gotten to a place where they were good for each other? Okay, go ahead. I think no. <laughs> okay. But I think it's only because only because so much damage had been caused to each other by each other and they had such a long history that I think that them trying to work to a place where their relationship would be healthy for each other would take years and years of emotional baggage and damage that they would need to work through together. And ultimately, I don't think that Angel I mean, I don't think I know Angel never loved Darla. So there would also be that huge obstacle of like Darla loved Angel, but Angel didn't love Darla. And I think that at this point, if Angel didn't love Darla, he never would. I view Darla and Angel, I'm thinking specifically in, um, I think it's as at the end of season two of Angel or season three where she's like a human and then is like really struggling and he's helping her through stuff. Am I thinking that right? Mm -hmm. um, I view that relationship very similar and how Buffy and Spike should have been handled in season seven. So like Buffy kind of helping in or Spike through a lot of stuff that he had gone through, like him being newly insulted and blah, 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 blah. But then they try to push a romance when we had just seen all the mess that had happened between them and it's extremely fresh and they try to just push that really – fast on the the viewers. I think that was not the best decision. I don't think that should have happened. I think it would have been maybe more impactful if Buffy was like, oh, I'm going to help you. And that's pretty much it. And that's what Angel does to Darla. There's no romance between them at that point when she's not like um, – when she's like a human and she's like trying to like figure things out. He's like helping her. And I agree with Leah. I don't think they – he ever loved her. I don't think that it would have been. I don't think that they would have been there romantically mm. from Angel's perspective. Yeah, I mean, they don't like they don't know each other as anything other than soulless, right? So there would be all of that, like literally hundreds of years of history between them, with the like many gruesome murders and atrocities that they committed. <sighs> would they ever? like get past that I don't know I think it would always be a kind of re rehabilitation kind of scenario and like sometimes love springs from that but I can imagine it being quite codependent so I would still prefer Dala and Angel than Cordy and Angel but <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that one ensouled in Angel and ensouled Dala with all of their history would work long term 
it would be interesting to see what would have happened if that had gone ahead and then, like, Buffy turns up. And then what happens? Yeah. I think for me, I think it is simplifying or even watering down an incredibly nuanced and complicated relationship that's gone on for multiple millennia between Darla and Angel to say that they didn't love each other. I I think that there are different types of love. And I think that it's more nuanced than that. I think it's it's a mix of um, I think there was something there. I'm not going to say it was to the level of Buffy because we all know that's not true. But I think there's a part of Angel that did care for Darla, but it's really hard to suss out like what exactly the depth of that was and what exactly the actual, um, I don't know, quality of it was simply because there was a lot of guilt at the very end. And, and Angel mm-hmm. even says that he wanted to save Darla because he felt like he could save himself, which again was – you know, him being selfish again, it goes down. Like it's that uh, that mess that they have of constantly using each other. The thing is though, I think that um, that yeah, I think there's just there was too much selfishness, but I do think there was a part of Angel that did care for Darla. I think there was just too much going on. So I don't know. Um, Emily says an angel loves at least three people at different points in his life, and they're all valid. And I think I think she's right to a certain extent. I think Angel did care for Cordelia. I know, but now we're all like, Bleh. did care for Cordelia, did care for Buffy, did care for um, uh, Darla at certain points. I think that it just looked different at each point. So yeah, I don't know. All right. Yeah. Okay, Bex, I'm going to bring Leia in. Yeah, cool. Bye. All right, Leia, if you want to go ahead and like pop in, you totally can. Am I the insurgent Kangel Stan? You probably are, Emily. And yeah, if you want to totally write out or come on and tell us why, we are completely open to that. I I love hearing the, the differing and here's opinions. The, I we're not sitting here trying to cor- like slander Cordelia or Angel. We love them both, and I mean, I won't speak for Sarah and Tabby, but I love them both so 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 much. But I think it's just together they both lost like I feel like the writers had to take out certain parts of their personality to make them work as a unit and I I just didn't like that especially Cordelia I really feel like they lost a lot of Cordelia's character to make them work as a couple um and I kind of hated that even even when she was dating Xander I feel like she was still Cordelia but when she was like with and Doyle too but when she was with Angels like they they wanted to make her like Angel's cheerleader instead of making her Cordelia. Um, and I just I really feel like when she's with Angel, they did a disservice to her character. Well, I think that that's supposed to kind of the whole point of healthy relationships is that it encourages you to be yourself and to be the best version of yourself. And I think that. Cordelia didn't even seem like Cordelia. She didn't have her wit to her. She didn't seem like she was her own independent character. I just, I don't know. I just felt like it was like, she wasn't Cordelia to me during that time. I was like, this doesn't seem like, and I feel like in a TV show, you should never have to try to force relationships. They should, there should be chemistry that you kind of create. Like any, anytime there's like this, like, um, uh, like, big like relationship and TV shows, most of the time they were not planned. Like I think that like Stefan and like um Elena were like gonna be endgame or like um I think of um uh what's 
Oh my gosh, what's the one with Pacey and uh, Joey? Do you mean ah, Dawson's Creek? Creek? Yeah, Dawson's Creek. They, those two relationships, ah. they, they were like created because the characters had so much chemistry. And I think that that's right. like how it should right. be done. Yeah. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Hi. the podcast. Hi. All right. Tell us your thoughts on Kangel. So I agree a little bit, like with the the actual way that I think Kangel was written, especially in late season three and season four. I think it suffered a lot for the way that it was presented but I don't put the blame of that with the Cordy Angel relationship I think there was so much stuff going on behind the scenes with Chris McCarpenter and Joss Whedon Mm. which we all know about um I feel like the damage came from that so I think the the reason I prefer Cordy and Angel and um like I'm probably in the minority. I think like Buffy and Angel is fine. Like it's I find it very serviceable, but it's just not my sure. not my thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I always liked that they were very much like a slow burn relationship. They weren't des- mm-hmm. Cordelia and Angel weren't designed to be a couple. Sure. Like they were, you know, these two characters, they became very good friends. I enjoyed their dynamic, um, their sort of like slight bickering. And I felt like their relationship evolved very slowly and naturally. You know, three seasons on Buffy and then two seasons on Angel before they start hinting at and moving towards the more romantic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just found that a much more natural development. And that's why I, I tend to prefer that relationship, even though when they move into the full on romance stuff, some of the stuff they do there isn't quite perfect. I think the season three finale of Angel, especially, is very out of character for Cordy um, in what she does. But yeah, I, I think that's more like yeah, that that stuff happens to happen at the same time as they do the Cordy Angel stuff rather than being because of it. Hmm. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. I think I can appreciate the slow burn because I do – I think it's taken a couple rewatches to watch Buffy and Angel and be like, oh, okay, so they're – it is a little slower than when I initially watched it. When I first watched it, I was kind of like, whoa. And I've heard that from several people. Like they jumped from zero to 100. It feels like really fast going from, oh, we're not we're not in a relationship or I don't know if he likes me to the next episode. She's calling him her boyfriend, you know? So I think there are times where it does feel like mm-hmm. it goes very fast. Um, and so again, it's a supernatural yeah. show. So we all know it's like, it's going to happen for one, but also it's, um, it's going to happen fast. Uh, but I think in the real world, how Cordelia and Angel's relationship did end up happening was probably more realistic in the sense that you start off as mm-hmm. friends first and go. So I can definitely appreciate that. Do you feel like um, – because I think my biggest beef with the um, Cordelia and Angel relationship is mostly I feel like they had to change Cordelia a lot. And again, that could be because of behind the scenes and the writers. Do you feel like they changed Cordelia's character a lot to make her compatible with Angel? I don't think so. I think, especially you see in season three of Angel, that Cordelia has gone undergone a lot of character development, but she is still very much Cordelia. Um, she's she, you know, she still can be a little bit selfish. She's a little bit sassy. She, you know, she is more empathetic and tends to like filter herself a little bit more when it's appropriate. Um, but I think she is very distinctly Cordy, okay. and I think she only becomes very much not Cordy in season four and perhaps the very end of season three. Yeah. Um, 
and you know what why that is you know I can't know maybe it was because of the Claudia Angel relationship I always felt it was more because of what was happening with Chris McCarpenter yeah, that just sort of I would agree. torpedoed that and I think I especially point to um You're Welcome in season five as an episode that is like such a good Cordelia episode she is so good in that she is so very much her mm. and that is also very strong with the Cordelia Angel romance and I, I think that episode is like when we reach that is oh that's what I've been wanting from the Cordelia yeah. Angel romance this yeah. whole time yeah. rather than actually what we got in, yeah. in season four it's like too little too late at that point you're like dang it come on yeah. <laughs> it's like kill him it's so good. <laughs> Before I watched um, Angel, I knew that Cordelia and Angel got together. And my initial reaction was like, no, no one is good for Angel except for Buffy. But I think watching it was very different because I was like, oh, like they're both – they didn't – it's hard to say this, but like I don't personally like the way the writers did it. But I also feel like if – Angel were to fall for anyone else, at least in my opinion, the fact that he fell for someone like Cordy, who's just so amazing and so Mm. strong and powerful, I was like, okay, thank you. Like, I'd rather him fall for that than someone who just wasn't worthy of him. And Cordelia was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think all of Angel's love interests are just really strong characters. So it's, it's nice. They, he knows how to pick them for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Personally, this is probably opening a can of worms, but personally, for me, I feel like Angel's love interests were uh, generally more interesting than Buffy's love interests. I think, I mean, Darla for sure is evil, and I don't think we generally ship Darla with Angel, but I will say, I think Darla is still way more interesting than Riley. So at least there was that. (laughs) I mean, Riley pulls the average down a lot. I love Angel. I love Spike. Really Girl, don't worry. We're all on the same page about Riley. <laughs> yeah, season four is going to be fun. Guys, want to come back in oh, season yeah. four? We can all be on the same page at that point. <laughs> no. Oh, God. <laughs> just- <laughs> Thank you, Emily, for calling in. It was really interesting to hear from you. Nice. Thanks. Thank you. That's really cool. I feel like I don't meet a lot of people who have that perspective yeah. about Angel and Cordy. And so I think that it was interesting to hear. And I absolutely agree with her that. Cordelia and Angel got kind of uh, screwed over. The yeah, whatever was I think we can all agree behind that, the yeah. scenes or whatever. The writers and stuff they they screwed them over. And I think whether you're Kangle shipper or not, like they deserved more than what they got. Yeah, and Cordelia in general just deserved more. It's just it's a shame that Joss Whedon is a prick. That there was so much change going on in the networks, and that there was just. Joss is being stretched thin too amongst three different shows. And I think Angel, Chris McCarpenter has referred to Angel as Joss Whedon's redheaded stepchild in the sense that they're just, Angel was the show that would suffer. Like Joss moved a lot of his great writers and um, showrunners onto Firefly to kind of get that started. And then, you know, poured everything into that. And then Firefly was only one season and Angel suffered in that, in the, in between that. So it's just, it's a shame. Oh, Buffyverse Archives says, I love Riley in all caps. Woo. This is going to be good, man. I actually, okay. So I should. Yeah, us too. (laughs) Wait, before we do, um. Leah is trying to get on. Leah is trying to get on. Yeah. Leah, sorry. It's okay. All right. Um, Narcissist. <laughs> Leah's like, I know. I assume that she's going to use my pronunciation. <laughs> oh, 
pretty. There she is. Hello. Can you guys hear me? We can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Um. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um. I just wanted to come on. I think we were talking about like Darla and then Kangel. Um. Yeah, all over the place. That's what happened. Yeah, I, I kind of like lost my train of thought. I wanted to say something about Sorry. Darla. I think one of the scenes that just in terms of like answering your question. So I think I like agree with a lot of what you guys were saying about how, you know, I like, I don't think that they could have gotten to like a healthy point ever in their relationship. Um, I just the scene that really like hits that for me is in season two of Angel when she's a human and she goes to the hotel to him and then asks him to turn her. I think that's like one of the scenes that really just represents that relationship, whether they're sold or like soulless. Um, you know, Darla says, you know, I, I, I find that I need you just as I've always needed you. So I think when they're soulless, like they spent 150 years together and they needed each other. So I think that's how they cared about each other, even though you can't like really care when you're soulless. Um, And then as you said, Sarah, I think it was you about how I feel like Angel views human Darla as like a way for him to make up for the things that he's done. Like if he saves her, then he can save himself because them two together cause so much destruction. So it's like he always he's always going to associate her with his past and the horrors of his past. And I just don't think that Angel would ever be able to view her as anything else. I think he does care about her because it's pretty evident. I think he's willing to die for her in like the trial, right? Um, I just, I think it's like such a traumatic, Angel's past is such a traumatic thing for him. I don't think that he could ever move past that. And, and Darla's so intertwined with that, that he would just never be able to like look at her any differently, I don't think. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. kind of my opinion on that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, I think that's where I fall too, just because Angel's already wrestling with his past, with the fact that he has Angelus inside of him. I don't think having Darla there would be healthy for him. Like he's already got so much weight and a burden on him. Then on top of that too, Angel tends to, I think he's kind of just very empathetic about the people around him. He tends to kind of like absorb. And so right. I think- yeah, I think it just would be unhealthy all around. And again, like there's been so much abuse and using and misusing of each other that it just, yeah, I just don't know that it would have worked. And it's a shame because they have great chemistry. And I think if, yes. like, if you take away the past and everything, I think um, Darla, as we see, had the potential to be a really great woman if she had a soul and stuff. Um, and she actually, actually had the potential to be selfless. Like her last act was literally so selfless after like hundreds of years right. of being selfish and using people. So I think there was potential, but for them to, with all the, the baggage, I think it wouldn't have worked. No. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you made it on. I made it on. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Thanks, Leah. Feel free to pop back on now that you know how to get on here if you have um, something else to say. I don't know how to get out, guys. Hold on. I'll I'll get you out. I'll get you out. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Bye, Leah. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Thank you.
<laughs> Thanks for being patient with us as everybody comes on and off, you guys. This is really interesting. I'm having so much fun talking with you guys. Mm-hmm. I hope this is interesting for you, I know. Too. I hope you guys are enjoying yeah. it as much as we are. <laughs> this is really fun. Okay. We're going to move on a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about parallels with Darla, and then we're going to move on to Xander, which I know you're all – some of you are excited to talk about, and then, yeah, we'll go from there. All right. So I think it's really interesting. We we obviously know there's the correlations between um, Darla saying, close your eyes to Angel when she changes him and Buffy also telling Angel to close his eyes when she kills him. But there's another correlation, which I think is really interesting. And I had never figured it out until I was like doing some research and stuff. So when Darla changes Angel, she, you know, draws a line across her chest and it's, it's very like a sexual metaphor and stuff. Um, well, when uh, I think it's the episode, The Trial, I don't remember which episode it is, when Drusilla comes to change Darla back, Drusilla looks at Angel and draws a line across her chest the exact same way Darla did and brings Darla to her chest, but it's not sexual. It's like a mother nursing her baby. And we know Drusilla like constantly talks and refers to um, Darla as, you know, as her child, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be a mother. I'm going to give birth. And then in the previous, uh, before that, she'd called her grandmother. Um, And so I think that like, it just it's supposed to be a picture of like as the vampire is changing the um the or the the human that they're changing or whatever it how they change them is reflective of the relationship they have with them and that they're choosing to have with them and so it's all sorts of perverted twisted metaphors of sexuality but also like um perverse parenthood and uh, familial relationships and stuff and i just thought that was really interesting uh so a little bit of like uh, background to after this in the timeline, we all, if we've seen Angel, we know after this, Angelus goes on to kill his entire family after Darla changes him. And then him and Darla travel through South Wales and Northern England, killing people along the way before they meet up with the master. Um, and in the episode Darla, we see An- Angelus meet the master and Angelus actually mocks the master for living underground in the sewers, saying that he prefers to live above ground in the fancy places and prefers a bed. Angel chooses to live in the sewers, in alleyways, um, feeding on rats when he becomes sold, even though that's obviously not his preference because he's so afraid of hurting people. And I think that's just a huge like that really speaks to his character, the fact that like he recognizes the danger that he is. He is now become like what he once mocked. And I think that that's just really, really interesting. Darla also mentions multiple times, she says um, that she really enjoys the view. And I think that that's interesting because when I was watching the episode Darla again, and so, you know, Angel's like, yeah, Darla's going to be somewhere with a view. She really likes the view. And then it immediately cuts to Angela standing before the master. And I, I've been really like wrestling with going, okay, why was it exactly, what was it in Angel or Liam, I guess I should say, that made Darla go, yeah, him. He's the person that I want to be with for the rest of my life or whatever. I really think it came down to, one, she was lonely, but two, he had a pretty face. And like we know that Angel is constantly referred to as the person with the angelic face. But the fact that they say she likes something with a view and then it cuts to Angelus, I think is just hysterical that at the end of the day, she's just like, he's hot, I'll take him. (laughs) That cracked me up. I think I agree with what Emily said in the comments. that like Darla and Angelus's relationship was very much like a, a mother 
motherly type of relationship. I think it was kind of twisted in the sense where she was like, oh, I can show you all these things. We see that in Becoming Part One where she's like enticed by the idea of like showing him and exploring things with him and like being able to teach him what a vampire is like. And I think that even though it's twisted, I think it's such a cool idea for villains and lovers, especially for vampires, because like we see like them being corrupt, but we don't really see how corrupt their relationship can be. Because I think that Drusilla and Spike's relationship is very much romanticized in season two. And I like it. I think it's it's really fun to watch, but I like the fact that they really go into the dark side when it comes to Angelus's character. Um, which just makes him way more interesting to me. Kind of going along with what Tavi said. Emily said, I think all the vampires have a very twisted fa- a familial thing going on. So yeah. Pretty much what you're saying. It's 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 weird that they're all like – it's this weird like sexual but also like family thing that's going on. And it makes it very like twisted and creepy because you're like, oh, like one minute they're referring to each other as like a father or whatever. And the next minute they're like have weird sexual tension and you're like, this feels illegal. Well, Drew says that to she's like, oh, like is daddy mad or like whatever. Mm-hmm. She says that like in um I don't remember which episode. And Darla. Yeah. But, well, and uh Bangel and Surgeon, I mean Spike's mom literally tried to have sex with him. So yeah, it's consistent. It's all oh, the way across I, the I board. forget about that. <laughs> Ew, thanks, Bex. Um, yeah, no, that's totally true. And I mean, I think I quoted um back in Becoming Part One, Julie Dens. Um uh, or Julie Benz. Is it Julie Benz? Julie Dens. Anyway, the actress who plays Darla, she talks a lot about how, you know, she saw it as a, like a mother slash lover relationship. It's very twisted and very That's perverted. what Leia said in the comments. Yep. 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 Um, I also just want to point out, I mean, we all probably know the parallel, but I was watching the episode Lullaby where Connor is born and where Darla sacrifices herself because I thought it would just be, hey, we don't have to talk about Connor. We're just going to talk about Darla. But there's a parallel obviously between Angel dying in an alley and Connor being born in an alley. And I think that's really cool. You And they even recognize it. Darla says, Angel, our baby's going to die right here in this alley. You died in an alley, remember, Angel? I remember. And then we have that whole thing. I'm sorry. I wanted to say I'm sorry. This child angel is the one good thing we ever did together and the only good thing. And I just thought that was like a beautiful parallel that, you know, angel died and yet he had a second chance with Connor and, and then Darla dies in the alley too. So it all just goes full circle. All right. Let's talk about Xander. Moving on. All right, so let's talk about the combination of the library scene and the kick his ass scene. So the fight that they have in um, the scene in the library is very, very similar to the one that they have in Helpless, where they reference back the kick his ass scene. Um, only this time they're discussing Anya, and we talked about earlier about you know how there's the very inconsistent within the show and without the show or outside of the show, a lot of people tend to be harder on Angel than they do tend to be with Anya. And I love that Buffy kind of, it wasn't as well-rounded as it could have been and as like as in-depth as we wanted it to be, but she addresses it. Um, the roles are completely reversed with Xander not wanting to Buffy, not wanting Buffy to kill Anya, but Buffy telling him that she made the hard choice to kill Angel. Um, I think Buffy is far more compassionate with Xander in that scene in um, in Helpless than Xander is with Buffy in this scene in the library. And I think that contrast needs to be made. Xander is very 
harsh with Buffy and basically is like, what does he say to her? He says, um, who cares? Or so, what does it matter? And Buffy's like, I care. And then here in Helpless, Xander's going like, I love her, Buffy. And Buffy's like, they're Wait, going, do you mean yeah. selfless? Oh, I meant selfless, not helpless. Sorry. Yes, selfless. Oh, sorry. I was getting confused. My bad. Sorry. My bad. I get those confused. The episode where they're going to try and kill Anya because she selfless. went and killed all those frat yeah. boys. Yes, selfless. Thank you. Um, But I think that Xander saying all of that is very different from how he feels in selfless. Go ahead, Leah. I know you want to go off. <laughs> sorry. I'm not trying to cut you off. Everyone knows my opinions about Xander, but I think that it is so hard for me to watch back this episode specifically because, yes, Xander does not handle himself well in this episode at all. I think most people can agree with that. I think what makes it worse is that it's not an isolated incident. He does this with no compassion towards Buffy, her feelings, anything, but then when the roles are reversed – and he has to make a choice between his loved ones and the innocent. He's all like blaming Buffy and is like saying like, oh, no, you shouldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. You should have compassion, blah, blah, blah. But when she had to kill her lover, she was selfish for even considering not doing it or things like that. And I think that when I, I remember watching that scene where she's like, well, do you remember when you told me to, to like go kill Angel? And I remember sitting there and being like, Finally, finally someone is telling him, like, you have such a double standard for yourself and for Buffy. Like, I just ugh, watching the scene makes me so angry because I'm like, obviously, neither of them should have to be in that place where they have to choose between the innocent and the person that they love. But but at the end of the day, Buffy is the slayer and she has to make that choice for the sake of people. And she did that with Angel. And she was going to do that with Anya. And as much as that sucks, I love that Buffy is a consistent character. She chooses people over herself every single day. And I think that that's what's so frustrating about Xander is that even after seasons of character growth, where he does get better, he still reverts back to a selfish version of himself. Go off, queen. (laughs) No, I 100% agree. Um, And I think that links into the whole kick his ass scene. I mean, we all, whether his motivations were right or not, because I think his motivations can be debated. I think it's possible Xander had good motivations. We can't know for certain. I still think it was the wrong decision because of selfless. When Buffy is telling him it's the same thing, telling him at the end of the day, I'm the one who has to actually commit the act. So I'm the one that should be calling the shots on this. And I'm also the slayer. So I have the power. And that is a a fundamental problem that Xander didn't understand back in becoming part two when he took it upon himself to say, Hey, um, I don't actually like that Willow's doing the spell and I don't like Angel. So I'm, I'm just not going to relay some information, you know? So I think that it's, good that Buffy at least addresses it and selfless. It's just very, very frustrating that we never actually get to that point in the show, like where we're actually like, okay, let's full on address this. It just feels like that everyone always craps on Buffy for like making a mistake. And then where something where she's completely in the right to be angry about, they wait five seasons and then just skip over it when they bring it up. It's like, come on, you guys. Like I understand that having your main protagonist always going through crap is very entertaining to watch and it's very enticing, but it's like at some point we got to treat Buffy with some respect. Sometimes I'm just like, it's very frustrating. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. There's a there's a lot to say about it. And all right. So 
I have a couple questions for you guys. Okay, so we all know, and I have mixed feelings about this. We all know about the whole Xander is the heart thing. So we have Buffy is the hand, Giles is the brain or the the head, the mind, and Xander is the heart. So I don't know if you – I can't remember which episode it was that we talked about it, but I saw a really interesting comment where there is someone that had made a defense for Xander and said when Zan- Xander is the heart, it's a, the idea that Xander is a reflection of Buffy's heart, which I'm like, I cringe every time I say it, but hear me out. So it's the idea that <laughs> – I had I read this. So it's the idea that when Xander is saying things like in particular, like in When She Was Bad, Willow gets kidnapped – and Xander comes up to Buffy and says, if Willow dies, um, I'll kill you or something. I don't remember what he says. He says something – and Buffy's kind of sitting there in silent agreement. The idea, I think, and I don't think it's done well, is that Xander's written to verbalize sometimes how Buffy is viewing herself and viewing the situation. You have in Passion when Xander talks about how Angel – like. Um, Angel needs to die. Says faster, pussycat, kill, kill, and and everyone's like Xander, and Buffy goes, no, he's right. There's this idea. I think sometimes Buffy doesn't verbalize thing things a lot. She's like very internalizes things, and so sometimes the things that Xander says, as harsh as they may be, reflect how harsh Buffy is on herself. But I think that that's just Buffy being hard on herself, and this is coming from somebody who's the exact same. I think all these awful things about myself all the time. And then anytime someone confirms that, I want to agree with them because I'm like, you could say whatever you want. I'm pretty sure I say way worse in my head. And so I think that it's unfair to say that like he's the heart, but he only sees it in one perspective. And he's like always the one that's like crapping on Buffy's decisions. It's like you never really see him crap on Will's decisions. You never see him crap on Giles. It's always Buffy's. And so if that's what they're going with, that's kind of frustrating because it's like they could have gone with a more softer side to that. But it's like the only time you really see that is when he's like angry with Buffy or like trying to like question her motives or like whatever. I just don't know if that's what they're trying to go with. I just don't like that. I I actually – I've never heard that perspective before, Sarah, and I, I think that's really, really interesting. I feel like they wouldn't do that to a whole character because then it just pretty much dumbs Xander down into just a – aspect of Buffy and I feel like that's kind of does a disservice to his character because it's like you know then he's not even his own real person anymore but I always viewed it as because I remember when I first watched the show and you told me like oh the metaphor of like how they all work together as like one body and how Xander was the heart and I remember being like that's a joke right like Xander's not the heart but then I thought about it and it it logically makes sense because Xander is human. Therefore, he like and actually human. He's not a witch. He's not a slayer. He's not a watcher. He has no supernatural abilities whatsoever. The only thing he has is the fact that he was a soldier for one episode and somehow they use that for seasons to come. But it makes sense that he's the heart because he has the most human in him. He has the most attachment to the world because he is the one that is the world. He lives in the world. He is a product of it. And I think that he's the heart because ultimately humans are flawed and they are kind of corrupt in some in a lot of ways. And so I think that Xander is the heart because I think he kind of reminds the group like what they're fighting for in a way of just being like, Go, you can right. go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. And I, someone referred to it as Xander is very passionate and that, and he's also impulsive. And that's the heart, right? The heart just 
wants things and it does it without even thinking about it a lot of times. And so Xander's a representation of that. And so I try to remember that and give him grace, even though I think he does crappy things, because I think that he still is trying to represent something, whether that's, you know, um, how males uh, feel about themselves in the 90s or whatever. But it's, I think the whole heart issue, it um, the heart issue, the heart issue of it all is, um, I really appreciate that perspective of he's human, he's flawed, is is just really interesting. Emily wants to call in. Yes, call in about the heart thing. Yeah, I was about to say, Go Emily ahead. is asking. You guys can call in at any time. Go ahead. You don't even have to ask. Even just if we've it. heard from you. You guys have yes. heard our opinions yes. many times. We've heard our opinions. We don't want to hear us. We want to hear you. Yeah, we know our opinions. Yes, exactly. All right, give it to us. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. Uh, so I really like the, the whole heart, mind, soul thing. I find it really interesting because I think that they're not necessarily positive um, representations of the heart, soul, and mind. Um, so, like, Xander is a lot of the time in conflict with Buffy's heart. Like, he has a pattern of not particularly liking um, her her boyfriends. And the one he does kind of like is probably the one that she doesn't really love. And I find that very interesting because it's sort of representing her heart in conflict with itself. Like she's, you know, she is such a self-punishing person. And I think especially after what happens with Angel in season two, she really punishes herself for um, her desires, like her attractions to certain people. And I think that's why she ends up going with Riley, who's like a safe, sensible option. She feels like that's what her heart should want. And yet it's not really what she wants. And I feel like it's similar w- with Willow and Giles as well. You see in season six, especially, Giles as the mind, he leaves because he thinks he knows what's best for her. He makes this executive decision and he's proven to be wrong. Like he leaving her on, on her own is not the right call there. She goes full off the deep end after he leaves. And Willow, again, is her her spirit and yet she's the one at fault in season six for essentially breaking Buffy's spirit she pulls she literally pulls her out of heaven that's like the ultimate spiritual betrayal so I think all three of them like it's not as simple as like okay they represent like the good sides of of Buffy's um in like internal self but you see bits of that in something like primeval but then there's also times where they aspect the represent the worst aspect of of that part of Buffy and show how she's not quite at ease with herself throughout the series. Like she punches herself a lot. Yeah, I think that's so cool. I've never even thought about that metaphor in a negative light. I've always yeah. thought about it in a positive light. And I think that's why for so long it was hard for me to mm. grasp Xander being the heart because I was like, what the heck? Like he's so selfish. Yeah. But I think the heart can be really selfish. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's that's such a beautiful way of putting it that that's who they are in the group. And when they're all being great and being, you know, healthy aspects of them, the group when they're works unified. in a cohesive good. Yes, yeah. it works in a good way. But so often, especially in season six, we see that they don't work well together when they're all not 
working to their strengths and being healthy versions of them. That's amazing. Thank yeah. you. I never no, even thought awesome. about that's that. That's super insightful. Yeah. Oh, I have a defense of uh, Sandra and Selfless. Okay. Do I want it. To make this <laughs> popular. How about <laughs> it? Go ahead. So, right. I, my argument is that what what is happening in Selfless is not comparable to what's happening in Becoming because Anya is not an existential threat to the world like Angelus is. And she also has been evil for a much shorter period of time and has shown much more ambiguity in her evil. So Angelus turns and he's instantly, he's slaughtering people, he's he's killing Buffy's friends, her classmates. Anya becomes a vengeance demon and she is not doing, you know, we see this in, in season seven, she is called out by Helfrek for being like a soft serve. Like she's not really punishing people. She's not really doing much. She ends up being kind of strong armed into um, killing people in selfless. So I think what is happening in selfless is more comparable to what's happening in innocence. And at that point, Buffy doesn't kill Angelus. Like I have full sympathy for, for, for not killing him. I totally understand it. And I do not blame her one tiny bit for that, but, she doesn't make that decision. And so that, I think it can't, she can't say, I made this decision to kill Angelus because she didn't at that point. And the other factor is that I think Buffy is proved wrong in Selfless because she, she goes to kill Anya, which, you know, fair enough, would stop Anya killing more people. Xander has the opposite opinion is like okay I'll go corrupt her which could lead to more people dying from Anya Willow has the actual right solution she calls to Hoffrin she brings him in and Anya then makes the decision to save to sacrifice herself she believes she's sacrificing herself to save the people she's killed and that is a decision that Angelus would never ever make so there's that option that Buffy doesn't consider in Selfless that just isn't there in in the situation with Angela. So I don't think the situations are completely comparable. I think the argument, though, is the fact that Anya, like, had a soul and that she chose to do this. I think that's what the argument is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it's like she chose to be a vengeance demon way back a thousand years ago, did all of that while having a soul, then was, like you said, she was trapped as a human based off not her own choice. But then it was her choice to be a vengeance demon again, and it was her choice to slaughter the boys. Like, yeah, she felt bad because she was a human for a while and she decided to take it back. But um, I think that's where the argument is coming from. Yeah, I totally get that. I don't think there's anything – I would say that Buffy is categorically wrong for making – that decision to kill Anya, but the objectively better solution is the one that Willow comes up with. And that's a solution that if but if Buffy had killed Anya when she stabs her through the chest, she would have cut off that potential solution. It's you know, it's weird in both situations, Willow is kind of the one with the who actually fixes the situation. You now she resolves Angel, then she um gives Anya the, the chance to um, to take her wish back and sacrifice herself. 
So, so you, yeah, I, let me, I, um, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. So you're saying that Buffy yeah. didn't give, you think Buffy should have given Anya more of a chance. Like she should have given her a choice. Yeah. Because okay. Willow gives her the choice and Anya makes the right choice. Okay. And I think, whereas, you know, that's, that option wasn't there with Angelus, which changes the dynamic. Sure. She couldn't have gone, Hey, Angelus, do you want to stop killing people? Yeah. <laughs> He, he just would not yeah. have done that. But could you say that she didn't give Angel a choice? Like she killed Angel and Angel was innocent versus Anya over there who made the choice to be a vengeance demon not once but twice and also as Tabs mentioned with a soul. So I think like they're not perfect and perfectly comparable and then someone mentioned no. here too like Anya is also thousands of years old and she slaughtered millions of people like she started the whole revolution like they showed i think it was the french revolution or something um uh, russian is it the russian yeah thank you yeah so they she started the revolution so it can be argued that like anya is actually changing historical worldwide events it's possible that mm-hmm. she's causing thousands maybe millions of people to die yeah she's not sucking the whole world into into hell but i think she's still very much a threat and the fact that she's choosing mm-hmm. all of this with a soul is I think even yeah. more of a sus-, sus thing, you know? And yeah. I think that the the issue ultimately that I think a lot of people have, because I, I love hearing a different perspective. I'm king of devil's advocate. Um, I think the people, why a lot of people have an issue is the fact of the parallels between making the ultimate decision between your lover, a person you love, or the innocent. And ultimately, regardless of, you know, whatever the situation was, Buffy made the choice to kill Angel, her lover, over the innocent because she realized that he was a hazard and that it was either him or the world. And I think that the issue that people have is the hypocrisy in Xander when he was forced to make that decision, he did not have the same grace that Buffy had and ultimately resulted in anger against her. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, where I'll ultimately come down is I don't, you know, we don't see the possibility of Xander being, you know, in some becoming-like situation with a portal behind Anya and he's got a sword <laughs> and he can make that Could decision. Could you imagine? Maybe he would make that decision. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't know what he'll, yeah. he'll do. But right, right. Uh, I, that's why I think it's more similar to Innocence where Angelus has turned. He is sure. a threat, just sure. like Anya is in season seven. Buffy can kill him, has the option to kill him then, and she doesn't. Again, not no blame on her, but right, right. I think that's why I have sympathy for Xander in that scene because I think he's making the same decision in that moment that Buffy is making in Innocence. Yeah. Yeah. And I sympathize that. I've been sympathized with both of them. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty of it is like, you know, we're watching Xander in a really hard position. I think arguably Xander isn't really put in a lot of sacrificial-like positions in the show, um, at least in the, in the early part of the show. And so it's kind of interesting to put him in that position where it's like, okay, Xander, now you kind of have to make the same decision that Buffy's been having or you have the same choices that Buffy's been having. What are you going to choose? And so I think it's just – it's a very interesting scene. I think it would have been nice if they went deeper, but it's at least good that they touched yeah. on it. So thank you, Emily. That's super insightful. Like, come back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Thanks. Thanks. Elia, you wanted to pop on. 
um, go ahead and call in whenever you want. This is super insightful, guys. I, I'm learning a lot. I also think it's interesting too, like we're watching at the end of Becoming Part 2. I feel like all of the characters, Giles, Willow, Xander, and Buffy, you see all of their roles as the hand, the mind, the, the heart, all that actively playing out. You literally have Willow, the spirit, go, I want to do it again. That's the spirit of the Buffy gang is saying, hey, I'm getting back up after being hurt. And she literally does a spell, you know? She says, spirits of the interanum, I call on thee. And then you have Giles over there who's being tortured psychologically with his brain and how and with his mind. And you see him hold out for so long, even with Jenny. Um, and then you have Xander over there who is wrestling with his own heart with this decision. Um, and then Buffy who ultimately has to use her hand to kill Angel. I think it's just very interesting how um, even all the way back in Becoming Part 2, you, you're seeing this play out and stuff. So – all right, moving on. Let us talk about Willow. All right, so the biggest thing, obviously, is Willow doing her spell. And um, in Becoming Part 1, it's interesting. In the library, when Giles says, Willow channeling such potent magics through yourself could open a door that you may not be able to close. Um, and we talked about how Giles' past uh, experiences with the occult gives him a special insight into this. But we also talked about, too, how um, there seems to be a difference between channeling magic through yourself versus channeling it through an object. And um, I, I wanted to specifically contrast the scene of her doing her first spell here versus Orpheus in Angel Season 4, where Willow does the exact same spell. And it's interesting. I want to know your guys' thoughts because I've been like wrestling through it. So this is obviously a very like powerful spell and it requires a lot out of Willow. And I think that there might be, and maybe you guys have a different perspective. I feel like there are some inconsistencies with Willow on Angel versus Willow on Buffy in season seven with her ability to do this massive spell here. And yet in Buffy season seven, she's still kind of like magic shy. She doesn't quite want to delve completely into magic. I feel like she was very affected by what happened with this spell and it kind of set her down that path. Do you guys think that she should have been equally as affected after her spell in Orpheus or do you think she was, or do you think that like at that point she was able to control it better? I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts. I think at this point, this was the first big maggot, ma magic um, spell, the <laughs> maggot sorry, um, magic spell that um, Willow had done at this point. And so I think that for her and for Giles, I think it was very much like he was worried because he saw what a slippery slope magic was for him. And so I think that he was on the cautionary side of like, whoa, be careful because this opens something in you. And we've talked about the whole magic is an addiction um, storyline before, which I think is brilliant. I think it's more so of, Willow was learning how to use magic in a healthy way. And so I think at this point, when she was going back into it, A, she had done this spell before, so she knew what she was going in for. And B, I think she was learning how to deal with magic in a healthy way. So I think that she went into it with a much different perspective than she did the first time. And she had gone through so much that I feel like her reaction was going to be different anyways. It's just interesting because I went back and watched Orpheus. When Willow does the spell, her eyes go completely black at one point when she's doing it. And so I think that that's 
um, interesting in the sense that Willow's obviously still wrestling with and fighting with all that darkness that went inside of her. I don't know. I'm just – all I think about is Giles, you rank arrogant amateur when he's talking to her very gently in this moment saying, hey, like you're going to be opening doors that you have no idea about and then seeing that like followed through all the way down. And I wonder if it wasn't specifically just magic itself, like her doing magic that caused the spiral or the start of the spiral downwards. I think it was this spell in particular because one, it was so intense, but two, because it specifically channeled the magic through herself. And there's a difference between that and then channeling magic through objects. And we talked about how in Bewitched, Bother and Bewildered, like we've seen Giles do magic before, but he's always channeling it through an object versus through himself. Um, And so I think that the show... It's kind of hazy. I think they could have done a little bit better of a job of like clarifying that, but I think that there might they are trying to make a distinction between channeling objects through yourself versus through an object. But also in like a made up world, I feel like magic is like the best uh, example. I guess they could use, and I think that like kind of like what we uh, well we said this in a recording yesterday, so you guys haven't heard it yet. Um, but <laughs> the difference between um, like reality and then the metaphor they're using. So like um, the whole angel or angel storyline is supposed to represent like when a boy, a guy like is like one way towards you just to sleep with you and then turns into a completely different person. But that's not the reality of the angel and Buffy relationship. Whereas I think with magic, I think it's supposed to be a metaphor for people with addiction. But it's like if people – like magic or whatever, that's not necessarily the reality of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about all the time, there's the metaphor of the episode and then what's actually happening. And sometimes they're they're not always very well gelled together. There's often like a separation between the two of them. I also think this is really cool too. Um, so in Orpheus, when, you know, Faith is with an angel slash angelus inside of his brain, um, Faith tells an um, angel in the alleyway, she tells him that she hates his hair, which I think is hilarious because it's a callback to becoming part one. Um, But also, Faith will try to give herself up for angel, and she says, I rolled the bones, me for you. And I think that's really interesting because in becoming part two, Willow literally has to roll bones in order to do the spell. And so it's fascinating that not only is Willow doing that spell in Orpheus at the exact same time that Faith says, I rolled the bones. So it's this idea, like this this picture of like of giving up of yourself, like Faith is even um, in some ways, like the physical representation of what Willow was trying to do. Like as Willow's wrestling for Angel's soul, Faith's also wrestling for Angel's soul. And I thought that was kind of cool. All right. Hello, Leia. Hello. Um, yeah, I just wanted to hop on um, just about Willow. I feel like um, having Willow back in Orpheus and doing that spell, it was kind of like a call back. Like, I think it's like it was kind of painted in like a different way because I don't know about you guys, but seeing Willow and Orpheus after everything we'd seen her do before, it felt like the old Willow again. Yes. Um, it was like literally we haven't seen this Willow in like seasons. And I think that's that particular spell, like she says, it's the first spell I ever learned. And I think it's like a callback. Like this is this is Willow. Like, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, 
take, taking into account what happened between the first time she did the spell and going back in Orpheus, obviously she had gone through like a big change with magic. Um, so she's obviously more comfortable with the magic. So I think, I think it was a like really beautiful thing actually, because the first time you could see Willow was not in control when she was doing the spell. It, she, you know, she's very new. She doesn't know, um, how to control her magic. The spell took her over, whereas you see her in Orpheus, and she's in total control of the spell at that point. But at the same time, you're not seeing Dark Willow. You're seeing Old Willow again, which I thought was really nice because toward the second half of Buffy Season 7, we start to see that Willow again, where she's kind of starting to like slowly go into magic, and she's very hesitant, just like Willow in Season 2 was. Um... So that's kind of how I see that. Like, that's why, like, she's comfortable with it now because of what she's gone through. But she's been able to, like, overcome the dark phase. And now she's, like, old Willow again. And I don't know if they just did that for Orpheus, but I just thought it was really cool um, how we got to see, like, old Willow again. But this time she's more confident with that spell. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think Orpheus, in a lot of ways, it is supposed to be more fan service. Um, and I mean, I'm totally here for it and I'm not judging it at all for that because I think that it is, it was much needed in especially that season, but also where we were at in season seven with Buffy. Um, and yeah, I like to see it as old will too. I think that I liked what you were talking about how, you know, she was able to do everything herself because I mean, let's think about the mechanics of this spell in becoming part two. Like you have to have Oz chanting the Latin, you have to have Cordelia doing the incense, you have like three different people to help Willow do this spell. And in Orpheus, she's literally fighting with evil Cordelia while doing all the roles of that uh, Oz and Cordelia did as well in becoming part two. And so I think it speaks to her growth as a character and also as a witch too, which is just really cool. All right. So we'll, while we're waiting for Bex, we'll move on. Oh, there's Bex. It's me. And Welcome she's back. back. <sighs> Hi, guys. I have Hi, very Bex. little to add to this. I just wanted to see my face again. Okay. We're going to do a spike next. So you're, you're perfect. <laughs> oh, good. I can't wait. <laughs> guys, Leah, Leah said everything, basically. But I just wanted to add, like, do we really believe that season seven Willow with all of that power has the ability to do that spell again and uh -huh. she can't, she can't freaking tweak it so that his soul is bound. <laughs> I know it. I know we need the plot device. Like the whole point. No, I'm not about soul this too. Oh my gosh. But are you telling me that after everything Willow has done, she can't make that minor adjustment? I don't right. buy it. That's all. It's because we have to have our yeah. main character so, okay. suffer, you know, and then we can't ever have the the ship we want. <laughs> That's you know, Sarah. It's more interesting when they're not together. The time, because anytime I don't like the ending of a show, I just um, erase it and pretend my own ending is what happened. And so I tell them all the time that at the ending of Buffy, I like the ending of Buffy, and I like the ending of Angel. Well. The ending of Angel. Do you is really though? Good. Do you though? No, okay. I feel like you the don't. Ending of Angel, <laughs> the ending of Angel is really good. It's just not happy, which is what I wanted was a happy ending. Um, however, I have always told him, I'm like, in the future, even if Angel didn't somehow get the Shanshu prophecy, which I will die on the hill that he eventually got it. Um, I swear my life, 
that Willow could have found some spell to give him back his soul and make him human or something. Like, I know she, she absolutely could raise someone could from the dead. Like, if she can raise someone from the dead, literally. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, she can make him human. Like, there's mm-hmm. no question. What are the moral implications of we now are capable of giving vampires souls? So should Buffy be out there killing them when we can go and soul them? Like, how does that work? I mean, it gets oh, just very tricky. I didn't even tricky, think about that. Right? Should Buffy be out yeah. there killing them when we have an opportunity and maybe a responsibility to reinsult? I don't know. I don't know. Or should we be rounding up every single Mora demon, collecting their blood and rubbing them into the wounds of vampires so that everyone can become human again? Yep. But again, you know, they were really rare, but then one of them pops into like Angel's headquarters. A lot of the plot devices are like, come on, guys, think about this for a little bit. Because now we know there's a cure, but then it's like, then they're like, oh, they're really rare. (laughs) But here's one. Like, come on, guys, give us something. Give us something we want. There's some some shady stuff going on there. Uh, Emily says the funniest fan theory is that Willow did remove the the loophole but never told Angel. Oh, that's my favorite fan fiction premise for all, like, all Angel fanfic is like, Willow tethered his soul. Now you can be together. Like, in my head. But she'll never tell them because she's like, ha, 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 let's see how long it takes for them to figure it out. That's just, oh, that's just <laughs> That so would be awful. Could you imagine Willow's like, ha, ha, pranked you. You didn't need to go Willow fight would, on this hell mouth. Willow would but. never do that. Or one day Buffy's like, you know what? I think I'm cookies now. And she's like, all right, now that you're cookies, here's your angel. You can have him. I was lying. He's actually oh, good so now. that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh, hilarious. Do you want me to hang up before you start talking about my favorite character role time or shall I just um, bring back? It is up to, it is up to you. Are you going to have <laughs> stuff to say? I don't know if anyone wants to see the faces that I make while you're talking, to be honest. We do. We definitely do. <laughs> yes. Okay. We do. Because trust do. me, we have we have many different opinions when it comes to Spike, so – yeah, there's Lee over there. Buffyverse Archives says yeah. Angel didn't love Nina in all caps, and we we all agree. <laughs> Nina, Preach. oh, I absolutely hate her. Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah, both Angel and Nina would agree. I, think, I don't think anyone has ever said Angel love Nina. Poor Nina, Nina. I, I'm poor I feel Nina. bad for, her, but then I also yeah. kind of just don't feel bad for her. Yeah, because you know, the yeah. girlfriend knew what she was getting into. He obviously told her about Buffy, so. You know, whole boring Nina. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, she kind of looks like Darla too. Oh, Angel has a. She type. is blonde. Angel has a. Type. Oh, he he has one very except specific Cordelia. type. Does not stray from it, except yeah. Well, one would argue he that. Well, she Cordelia really did go type. blonde. <laughs> Technically, she was blonde when he was into her. That's oh, true. Well, there. That's ah! true. <laughs> Blames it. He's like, I oh, only no. date exclusively blondes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Spike because we don't have much time left. All right, so the truth is I like this world. You've got dog racing, dog racing, Manchester United, and you've got people. All right, so there is a little bit of a inconsistency or a so supposed inconsistency. And we kind of talked about it in season two. But in Surprise and Innocence, Spike doesn't seem to care at all if the world ends with the judge. Yet he tells Buffy that he doesn't want the world to end here. And then again, we see him with Drusilla and he tells Buffy or he sees Angel or Angelus about to kill Buffy and says, God, he's going to kill her. Then he shrugs and walks away. So the implication here is that 
Spike doesn't seem to actually care about the world. And I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are. Does Spike actually care about the world? Is it a mix? What is it? Okay. Well, most people know my opinions. I think that the way that I interpret that episode and everything, I do think that Spike loves the world. I think that it is something that is just in his character that he loves to be the one to bring the chaos. And I think that if you're in – if you bring a hell dimension onto the earth, you're not really the one bringing chaos anymore. You're just living in chaos. And I think that Spike likes to be in control in that way. And I understand that. Um, But I also think that Spike has always been motivated by passion and love. And I think that as much as he loves the world, I think he loves Drusilla more. And so those were two motivations for why he was helping Buffy. But I think in that moment when he he knocked Drusilla out, in his mind it came down to, I either leave Drusilla here and help fight Angel and ultimately risk Drusilla either leaving when she wakes up or fighting me again and I lose out on Drusilla or... I pick up Drusilla, we leave, and I risk the world being lost. And I think he ultimately chooses Drusilla because he's motivated by love. Okay. So then that leads into my second question is, is Spike motivated by love and passion or is he motivated by selfishness and obsession? And I, I, so Tappy and I, obviously you can see where we fall. Tabby and I think that I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tabs. We think that he's motivated by selfishness and obsession. And Leah thinks he's motivated by love and passion. And one of the things that we see as, or Tabby and I see as an example of that is, you know, him choking out Drusilla and forcing her to come with him when she doesn't want to because he believes that's what's best for her. That doesn't seem like love to me, even though he's shown that he's cared for Drusilla in the entirety of season two. Um, and I think that's consistent with this character throughout the series. Go ahead, Bex. <clears throat> I think that what Spike believes he is feeling as love and passion is actually obsession and entitlement. And he is incapable of knowing the difference. Because even, even as William the poet before he was turned, he had, we obviously don't learn this until later, I know, but he had an entitled attitude towards women where he he really believed that he was entitled to their affections. And when they rejected him, he became aggressive and uh, very woe is me and the world owes me something and that woman should love me. And I love Spike and Drew together as villains, but actually even when he whacks her over the head and drags her into the car, like did anyone ask her if she wanted to, like he's still making decisions for the women in his life. I don't think he can tell the difference between actual love and obsession. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree so much with what you're saying, I think until he gets his soul back. And I think that I would make the argument that in general, that um, vampires in general do not know how to do anything that is not selfish. And I think we see that even in season five when Spike loves Buffy, but because his heart is so corrupt because he is ultimately a demon, even with the chip, he 
is doing things to try and get Buffy to love him, but it is ultimately out of a selfish gain because he just wants Buffy to love him. He doesn't want what's best for her. He just wants her to love him. Mm -hmm. And I think the only time that changes is in season seven. I think that there is some issues with how much time they gave dedicated to Buffy and Spike instead of dedicated to Buffy and her friends. But ultimately, I think that Spike as a character, when he does not have a soul, or when, uh, yeah, sorry, when he doesn't have a soul, he is motivated by love. His love is just ultimately selfish. Mm. There is that scene with Spike and Drew where, and Buffy went in season five, I can't remember the episode name, where Crush. it's that iconic scene where Buffy's like, you can't love you because you don't have a soul. And Dahl mm-hmm. is like, actually, we we can in our own way. And that also ties in with David Fury. He has so many great little quotes about how, it's impossible for for a demon or something without a soul to to love as we understand love but obviously like spike and drusilla especially from spike's point of view were dedicated to each other for however many hundreds of years and also angelus and dala like there must be some form of like loyalty and passion and some kind of connection but i don't think it's as you were saying, saying Leah, I think it's ultimately self-serving. And that's like the whole, that's a whole premise, or I would say not premise, but like underlying metaphor of season two is the the difference between passion um, or obsession and love. And Joss talks about that. You see that in Jealous, like it, it flips overnight from love to obsession, um, a twisted obsession. And so for, and Joss has said like, with vampires, they don't, they aren't capable of loving. And so it, for, to them, it just turns into this selfish obsession. And I think we see that. Mm. And yeah. Emily said, uh, that Drusilla was like, we can, but not wisely in reference to loving each other. And it's very true. I think it just gets very muddled with spike <laughs> because we even see that in this season. And I think it still can be explained in a way that makes sense, but they were only planning on having Spike there for five episodes and then had to change it. And so the episode or the season even kind of changed a little bit in thematically. And then you see that in the rest of the show too, where it's kind of like, okay, we we see that a vampire can't love, but then we also watch Spike and we're like, but it feels like he can at times. So it just makes it all mm-hmm. just very muddled and messy. I always bring the, I think so much of that inconsistency was uh, affected by James Masters' decision to play Spike with the soul from the beginning. There's a, there's a quote from him in that book that I'm always talking about, uh, Slayers and Vampires. But he, uh, he made the choice within himself as an actor to play Spike with a soul. And then he talks about how when, when he found out that actually in season seven, Spike was going to get his soul, James, the actor was like, okay, well, I've kind of been doing that the whole time. So how, like, what am I going to bring to this to change it up? And I think, I think a lot of the inconsistency in Spike's character and how he differs from other vampires within the lore of the show is, is down to, that decision and also like obviously the writers not being like hey guy stop playing him so um humanely it's like messing with the concept but guys it annoys me a bit yeah um yeah same (laughs) 
Also, I find it weird that Angelus was so determined to destroy the world because he loves the world. Like, even as Angelus, he's like, I'm very, he's very into books. He loves, he went to the ballet that one time and cried, allegedly, he tells us (laughs) in Angel the Series. I've always been confused by that. Yeah, and I think... Um, our theory that I don't know if you've um, heard on the podcast, our theory is that because of what happened and I um, I only have eyes for you, keep wanting to say I will remember you every single time. And then I'm like, I can't say I will remember you because that is a huge spoiler. Um, but in I only have eyes for you, the, I think the idea that Angel Angelus was so traumatized by what happened and the idea that like he was like, I have to go to hell to get away from Buffy. I have to go to hell to get away from what actual love is. And I think it comes down to the idea that vampires are actually repulsed by true love, possibly like true deep Mm. selfless love, because that's antithetical for everything that they believe and stand for. Um, And if you're pure evil, then you're going to have issues with that. And so my idea is that he's like, I'm going to, sorry guys, I haven't listened to all your episodes. No, it's totally fine. It's fine. We, but we, we had the whole because what happens is I only have eyes for you happens. And at the very end of the episode, he's like literally washing himself. And so it's this idea mm. of like he washes himself of Buffy in a lot of ways because he not only felt Buffy's and Angel's love, but he felt um, James's love. And I don't remember the teacher's name. Um, and so I think there's this yeah. sense of like he realized, oh, my gosh, it's not just Buffy and Angel that can love this deeply. It's also there's other people in the world. And so I got to go to literal hell to get away from Buffy. Let's kill it. You yeah. know? And so from there, there's a very obvious shift, except for Go Fish, but I cite that as like Go Fish is just an anomaly. They didn't mean to put it there. Um, but after that, you see Angelus working towards a Cathla. And I think it's because, I mean, he literally tells Buffy when they're fighting and becoming part one, he's like, this isn't about you. This was never about you when they're fighting. Um, and I don't have time for you. Like his whole attitude towards her mm. changes completely. And I think that's because he's just like, I got to get away from you, you know? So that's my mm-hmm. theory. It may not be true, but yeah, it is what it is. I like it. Thank you. I like it too. So, <laughs> All right. Does anybody else have anything to say about Spike? I'm going to hang up in case anyone wants to come in. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Bex. (laughs) Bye. Bye, Bex. I think that ultimately, I think that Spike is just such a complex and interesting character. And I think one of the things I love about him is how just like different people feel about him just because he's such a bold presence on the screen that it's like you either love him or you hate him, you know? Um I don't know. He's just – he's so cool and I well, – I think he questions a lot of the lore though. I think that's why it differs with different people is that he's confusing to me because sometimes I'm like – some episodes I'm like, this makes no sense to the show. Um, and then an episode later he reverts back. And so I think that he's just kind of – he's not very consistently written um, – and I think it's very frustrating because it's like we have all these rules and then he seems to change them, but then it reverts back to its original rules an episode later. And mm-hmm. so I think it's it's very frustrating because it's like I I don't hate Spike's character. I think he's fun. I think um, but I'm not gonna be blinded to a lot of his toxicity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how you say it. Um and I think my my biggest beef with him is season five and six, yes, season five included, um, 
And I think that season seven was taken in a direction that I'm very frustrated about, kind of like shoehorning this relationship to kind of mend what happened in season six. When you, it could have just been beautiful that Buffy was kind of helping him into his redemption without feeling the need to, you know, be romantic with him and to have a relationship. And so, um, I don't know. I feel like we're jumping the gun a lot. I don't really want to sit here and talk about Spike (laughs) for like the entirety of it, but that's all I have to say. I mean, about Spike at this point. Yeah, we we will have more to say about Spike <laughs> just because there's going to be three whole seasons to talk about him. Um, but I just thought that that was something to bring in just because, you know, he was in this season and there's a lot that happens. But okay, so we have um, – we're going to talk about Buffy and then we're going to be all done. So I know this is long. Thanks for hanging in here, guys. I'm having I'm having a blast. All right, so Buffy, specifically normal again in season six. So we find out that Buffy was taken to a mental institute by her parents after she told them about slaying vampires. Um, The scene with Joyce talking to her just really, really makes me think about that. The whole, you know, I'm not crazy. She's like, this is crazy, Buffy. Or she says, this is insane, Buffy. You need help. And then Buffy says, I'm not crazy. And they have this moment where they stare at each other. Um, it it would make a lot of sense canonically if Joyce did know because Joyce is just repressing everything. The whole like, you've been taking blood out of my clothes. I mean, and then I think about bad eggs where they're sitting at the mall together and Joyce says, honestly, don't you ever think about anything other than boys in clothes? And Buffy goes, saving the world from vampires. And Joyce goes, oh, I don't understand what goes on in your head. And then we have Ted where he talks about reading her diary and then talks about how he's going to um, tell her mom and then she'll be locked up in a mental institute. I think those are all very valid and real fears, especially given that we know that Buffy was in a mental institute. And I'm curious about your guys' thoughts because a lot of fans are very divided on that episode. A lot of people feel like it is not; it doesn't fit well canonically that we've never had any sort of inkling that Buffy was in a mental, mental institute. Um, and then other people absolutely love it. So I'm curious what you guys think. Go up for it, Leah. Oh, sorry. I know I had to re- reposition y'all. Sorry, I have back issues. Um, but I personally think it's so interesting. I love when shows or movies or whatever do the whole like kind of what if type of um, scenario. Um, I love that episode. I think it's beautiful. I think it is creepy and just twisted. I And I think it's sadly realistic. I think, you know – it, a lot of parents, if they heard that their their kid was kind of going off saying that they killed vampires and all that stuff every night, I think they would seek professional help. Um, and it's sad and it sucks, but I, I think that – not seeking professional help, but I think that uh, the fact that they didn't believe Buffy is sad. Um, I, I just think it's so twisted and I love that about it. Go ahead, Leah. Give it to us. <laughs> yeah, we're muted. Go for it. Hi. Um, yeah, I – I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but I love this episode so much. I think it's probably my favorite episode of season six. And to be fair, I don't really like, I only, I think I like one other episode of season six. Um, um, I think it's great. I I don't really view it as, you know, them trying to make the us question whether <laughs> this universe is real or not. I think it's just like a, I think it's a look inside Buffy's mind in season six. Um, I think it's supposed to show us just how much she's like torn, how much she like doesn't, 
she just came back from the dead. She doesn't even want to be in this world. So I think the demon's poison and her hallucinations and stuff, and especially with like the themes of like mental health being so um, big in season six, I think they use that really well to show us how much Buffy is like struggling in that season. Um, I never once thought that it was like, oh, like this is, you know, this is, this is the real world. And really what we've been watching all this time is fake. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought it's, it's such such a great episode. It talks about all the things that all the traumas that the writers have put every character through, throughout the whole series, they like call themselves out, basically saying like, you know, you've made up all of these like grand villains and all of these things. And now look at you where you are. You have these three like measly guys as the villains. And I just think it's like a great look into Buffy's mind. And I think that was the point of the episode is to kind of be like, yeah, like, like we get it. Like this is, this is how Buffy's feeling. She's not connected to the world. And I think at the end is it's really beautiful because she chooses to remain in her like fantasy world technically if she's thinks that she's in the mental you know what I mean like she she chooses despite all of like the pain and what she's feeling she chooses to remain in this world and that just goes to show just like how brave she is so that's how I view that episode that's why I love it so much someone said uh the buddy Buffy verse archive said I wish they did that for pretty little liars completely off topic but trust me if you wanted me to go off about pretty little liars and all the things they could have done better (laughs) <laughs> We'd be here all day, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. I think that normal again is so interesting because Buffy chose technically the harder life. She could have stayed in the mental institute and her parents are there. It's a happy life. It's a happy family. Like she could have gotten better and lived a normal life. The fact that she chooses to be strong and stand up and go back into this hellhole that is her life in Sunnydale speaks a lot to her strength and her um, her role as a slayer. And I think that's just absolutely beautiful. And for me, it fits so well canonically with this moment in season two that Joyce knew. Um, I think we talked about too on the podcast how we wish Killed by Death had mentioned it a little more. Like they're like, oh, Buffy has a fear of hospitals. Let's talk about her fear of hospitals because she was in a mental hospital, not because her cousin died that we never mentioned again. So I think there was like a couple of like missed opportunities where they could have brought that up. I mean, granted, they didn't know it was going to happen, but how cool would it have been if they had like mentioned that or like in season five, like Buffy has a fear of hospitals supposedly, but we never talk about this while Joyce is all in the in the hospital for the entirety of the season. So like, I don't know, it just would have been kind of cool if we'd had just like little hints here and there. But overall, I think that, um, I think Normal Again is a fantastic episode and it's my favorite season six episode as well. All right. I'm going to hop off. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Leah. Okay, we have one more thing and then we are all done, I promise, and this one will be pretty quick. All right, so season two and five parallels. There are a lot of parallels between this season and the season five finale. Um, We have first and foremost the fact that they talk about a key and how the key opens the portal with blood. You have Angel and you have Dawn. You have Buffy having to sacrifice someone she loves to save the world, only this time she makes a different choice between Dawn and between Angel. She chooses to sacrifice herself instead. We also have, um, this is a minor parallel, but you know, 
Spike is able to get into the Summer's house and tell Crush when Willow and Tara shut him out. Buffy invites him in again in The Gift, and the first time she ever invited him in was in Becoming Part 2. So there's like that parallel as well. Um, Buffy talks about uh, season five, like jumping or not jumping, but she talks about whether or not to kill Dawn as being a clear choice and how she just knew with um, Angel versus with Dawn, it's not so simple because Dawn is innocent. And I think that's, I think that's huge. And I think that shows, uh, character growth, um, on Buffy's part, recognizing, Hey, like the world is a lot harder and is a lot more intense. Um, and what do you do when someone is completely innocent? Um, although I guess it could be argued that Angel is innocent as well. There's another correlation, which I absolutely love. The sun rises in both of these episodes. Um, the, as soon as the sun rises while Buffy says me, like no weapons, no friends, no hope, you have the sunrise on her face and that's when she recognizes and has perfect clarity of what she's supposed to do. Same thing happens in the gift. As soon as the sun rises and it hits her face, she knows what she has to do. I think that's just a beautiful image. Um, also, uh, this is, it doesn't have to do with season two and five, but it also kind of correlates a little bit with chosen and chosen all the potentials and Buffy and faith use their shared blood to open the door to the Hellmouth, which is not a portal, but it's still a door, but it's very similar to how angel opened his portal and how Don opens the portal with glory. It's with blood. The idea is the foreshadowing of their shared power and destiny, but it also shows that together they open the door and together they will close it or destroy it. And it's kind of symbolic of like, hey, we're going to go in here and we're going to like possibly die trying, trying to shut this portal. Um, and then lastly, it's interesting that Spike's blood is what opens the Hellmouth in season seven, and it's also Spike's blood that technically closes it. I mean, he combusts and stuff. But I wonder if that is why the amulet was meant for Spike, because it was his blood that opened the portal. And I'd never thought about that before until I saw that. Like, Angel, like, it's not for me. I mean, I know they shoehorned the whole champion thing in, but I wonder if the amulet was meant for Spike because it was his blood that opened it. I don't know. Food for thought. What do you guys think? Nah, I kind of like the fact that he's like, I could do it, but I'm going to give it to Spike instead. Or Buffy's like, I could give it to Angel, <laughs> but I'm going to give it to Spike instead. She's like, in someone case. has to die. Eeny, meeny, miny. No, she's yeah, like, <laughs> she's like picking petals off a row. She's like, which one do I love more? But I love how she's which like, warrior? she's like, um, oh no, Buffy, I, or sorry. She's like, Angel, I need you like as like a second front, but I'm like, you know, Spike could do the second front easily, but she's like, no, I'm gonna give this. <laughs> oh, just she's like, oh shoot, whoever wear this could die. Spike, <laughs> you would look so sexy in this. Starts floating with him. <laughs> He's like, okay, she's I'm gonna wear it. On him. She's like, <laughs> oh, Emily has something to say. Yes. Yeah, I just had thoughts on the whole um, like parallels between the finales because I think that. Uh, this is like the first one of like a trilogy with um, Becoming Graduation Day and The Gift because those are all episodes in which Buffy has to um, kill someone that she cares about. You obviously got Angel in this episode, you've got Faith in Graduation Day and then you've got Dawn in The Gift. And I think it's so interesting because she is faced with slightly different um, like situations in each time. Like, first you've got Angel, who is sort of, as you said, like kind of 
like not quite innocent like he he has done some bad things but also is kind of not completely guilty because you got the angel angelus dichotomy um and she she makes a decision to kill him faith who is pretty much completely responsible for what she's done up to that point but the situation is much different it's not you know it's not angel against the world it's faith against angel and she she is faced with like a much more difficult decision like it's not as like as much as buffy loves angel and um it's kind of an obvious moral choice to choose right the entire world all seven billion people go to hell or this one person dies it's kind of like an easy version of the trolley problem whereas it's like in graduation day it's faith dies or angel dies you know, faith is a lot more culpable, but it's it's not as easily justifiable. And then Dawn is like Brock's dream example. Like, yes, you know, we have the danger of the the whole universe is going to get destroyed by this. But also, Dawn is a complete innocent. And so, I think you get this. It's why in the gift, Buffy's like is just fed up of making this choice. How everything gets stripped away because ev- every time it keeps on coming back to her. And every time it gets harder. And you see with um in each instance, there's the link of um both killing someone and kissing them. So obviously we know in Becoming she she kisses Angel and and kills him, as she says herself in uh, I think it's Faith Hope and Trick in Graduation Day, right when she's about, about to um fight Faith, Faith says give me a kiss, and that's when she hits her. You know, that is a, a metaphorical kiss that, you know, then leads to killing her. And then in The Gift, when she's about to leave, she kisses Dawn on the cheek and then kills herself. So it's like she's constantly in the same situation, And but The Gift is the final point in which she makes a different choice, and that changes um her decision and yeah i think someone in the chat said she kisses faith on the forehead in the hospital and yeah that's another that's not a literal kiss that, that i think links those three finales really strongly and yeah i love that dang emily take over our job that's so cool. i know you're doing better than us i didn't even think about that no i love that and i think i think it can also be linked to like we we were talking about vampirism, like the whole um, metaphor of biting is even like a, a kiss of a, of a mm. sword too. It's like a kiss of death. So you have like Darla kissing or biting Angel in that in that uh, alleyway. Like you have it throughout the show too. And I think I think what um, is it enemies the episode where Faith kisses Buffy on the mm-hmm. forehead as well too. So like it's this pattern over and over again. But I absolutely love that. That's that's really insightful, man. Dang, girl, where have you been hiding yourself? (laughs) We've loved it. Thank you so much. Yes. All right, guys. So that wraps up everything. I think we covered the entirety of it all. Guys, we've had so much fun. I think we covered all seven seasons. Yeah, I know, right? We have nothing more. Podcast is done. Thanks so much. My head hurts, guys. I'm not even joking. (laughs) 
I'm like sweating. <laughs> yeah, I have to turn off the air conditioning. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this too. Um, if you can, guys, if you if you are enjoying our podcast, if you guys can leave a review and stuff, that would be awesome on uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, and you guys all you all know where to find us. We've all seen you on Instagram. But for those of you who are listening to this on Thursday, you guys can find us on Instagram, Becoming Buffy Podcast. You can email us, Becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. We will hopefully do this again. And if we do, we'd love for all of you all to join us. This has been so fun. I Hopefully you guys have learned some stuff and I know I've learned some stuff. I'm all about the Buffy knowledge. I'm like, give it to me. I, I want to be able mm-hmm. to see each of these episodes like in a new light and it just it's just so entertaining and stuff to watch. But that's all you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day and we will see you again soon. Bye.